This is attorney Andy Markentil and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? I am doing well, brother, and I'm so excited about this show. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally pumped to get Dan Mitchell on Peace Radicals. Been trying to make this happen for a while. So uh, totally, I want to really get to Dan. Another wonderful, interesting <laughs> guest, man. We just keep getting great people on this show. It's totally. Frankly, frankly, it's honoring like to have this many great people come and talk to us about what they specialize in. I, it's my favorite thing about this podcast, Andy. We get to talk to people who we want to talk to and get them, lure them on the show and then get to have a conversation with them. Love it. Before we get to our wonderful guests, Mark, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to ask you, if I don't know anything about the Live and Let Live movement, I'm just maybe clicking on this video for the first time, I want a summary of what it's all about, why don't you summarize it for us? Okay, well, I mean, if that was really the case, I'd probably say, look, man, we got to get along. We're at each other's throats right now. Do you really, are you interested in freedom and peace? If you are, there's a way we can get there. We got to think about living and let live in, which means we got to take our morality out of the law. I know there's important stuff I want to say too. I wish everybody did what I wanted them to do and lived in ways I thought was best. But you know, other people feel that way too. They want me to live in ways they think is best. I don't want to, the only way I can get them to let me do what I want to do is letting them do what they want to do. It's called live and let live. And we got to get our ethics out of the law. And if you just forget for a moment, do a thought experiment with me. Just take your brain and forget everything the Republicans said and are saying, same with the Dems, same with the Libertarians. Forget what your mom told you, wipe the whole slate clean. We got a question in the Live and Let Live movement for you. Really simple. Here's what we want to know. How do you feel about aggression? And we break down aggression. You might be saying, what is aggression? Here's what aggression is. Initiating force against another person or their property. Like, you know, punching somebody or stealing something or engaging in fraud. You know what that is? Generally getting somebody's property through trickery. Or coercion, when you overcome somebody's will, you tell them you better do this or that. And the last category of aggression is doing anything that puts another person in danger. You can't do that. So that's what we're saying. We're against it. How do you feel about it? If you're for it, well, then fine. We're not going to get along because I'm against it. If you feel like you're against it as well, there's a group of people forming around the world. We're the live and let livers. We're totally against aggression. And we feel that way for all people. We don't care what color their skin is, where they were born, if they believe in God or don't believe in God, if they're rich or poor or whatever. We don't care about any of that stuff. This rule applies to everybody in all issues at all times, no exceptions. Even if you form a group, little group. The three of us get together here and form a group. We still don't get to aggress. Why would we? Even big groups, corporations, and the biggest group of all, the government. Why would we want our government to aggress? As I've just explained it, seems like we wouldn't. They're our agents. They're supposed to be protecting us. That's why we hire them. That's why we formed them. So that's such an important point that we call it rule number one, the most important rule. In fact, we can't have any other rules unless we agree not to aggress. That's gotta be our first most basic rule. And it applies to everybody and it's mandatory, no exceptions. If you're violating that rule, you're in the wrong. If you're not violating that rule, I have to leave you alone. Cause if I don't, I'm violating that rule. Nobody gets to violate the rule. We've only got one other rule. There's only two rules in live and let live. I'm gonna tell you about the second one. The first one, rule number one, don't be an aggressor. That's our legal principle. Rule number two, it's our moral principle. You're totally free to ignore it if you want. We're making a suggestion and we're not shy about saying we're trying to convince you here. We wanna persuade you to be a good human. You have a pretty good idea what that means already. I know you do. But in case you need a little bit of more information, we have things called aspirational values. 
We want to tell you about them. Things like open-mindedness. Can you be open-minded on every issue? And if somebody changes your mind, thank them. It's a good thing. They improved you. Tolerance. People live differently. It's okay. They celebrate different holidays, eat different foods, love differently, whatever. We got to tolerate them legally. How about being civilized? Do we have to call each other names? We're going to disagree sometimes. Can we agree to disagree in a civilized way? Civility is a really important aspirational value, as is building high levels of trust with other human beings. All your best relationships are the ones with high levels of trust, and all your bad relationships are the ones with low levels of trust. We care about truth and facts and rational thought. We're interested in that. Why? Because our goal with the moral principle is to optimize human happiness and well-being and to minimize suffering. You have every right to completely ignore me here. You can say, Mark, I don't care about any of this stuff. I'm going to live however I want. We say, okay, fine. You're not part of the live and let live movement because we got two rules. You got to agree to them both if you want to be a live and let liver. But if you don't agree with number two, we defend your right to do whatever you want, even if we disagree with what you're doing. Moral reasons, we might find it really ridiculous, unhealthy, unwise, unwarranted, not in your interest. That's your choice. You are in charge of your body, property, money, and time, not me. That's rule number one. And we never violate that rule. So anyways, that's what the Live and Let Live movement is about. It's a group of people who buy into both of those rules. And we want to change the world. We have chapters all over the world, and we're, I'm urging you to join. To find out more, go to liveandletlive.org and be part of the solution. That's what I would say, Andy, if you were just checking in saying, tell me about this thing. And if I said uh, likewise, you know, listening to that, Mark, just wasn't enough. And what I really want is the hour and a half long version of you and Andy just going on and on and on and totally unpacking the principle and then applying it to actual real world issues. How does the live and let live movement, for example, apply to the drug war? How does the live and let live movement apply to tough questions like abortion and immigration and things of that nature? Well, if you want the answers to those things, my friends, I'm going to put the link to what I like to call the excruciatingly long breakdown live and let live episode. Click it below if you want the full deep dive. Well said, Mark. All right, my friends, let's get our uh, very awesome guest involved. His name is Daniel J. Mitchell. He's an economist, and he is the former senior fellow at uh, the Cato Institute. Uh, he specializes in fiscal policy, tax reform. He's a proponent of the flat tax, financial privacy, fiscal sovereignty. And uh, Mark, I believe you said you met him in Columbia at Freedom Fest. Is that right? Yeah, you know, Dan's sitting there thinking, that wasn't the excruciatingly long version that you already gave. <laughs> but Dan doesn't know me that well. I met him once in Columbia at the Liberty International, Liberty International Conference. Yeah. yeah, and I did everything I could do to twist his arm because his presentation was, I said, this guy's a live and let live. He doesn't even, he doesn't know it yet because he doesn't know what live and let live is. So I did everything to twist his arm to get him to go look at live and let live. And then I spoke in a, at a conference in Nigeria on Zoom recently, and I tuned in a day early and boom, there the guy is again. And I watched his whole presentation. I said, you know what? Andy's going to meet Dan Mitchell and everybody who listens to Peace Radicals. I'm doing him a huge favor right now because I'm going to introduce them to Dan Mitchell. It's so important what he has to say that I wanted to bring him on. So, dude, thanks so much. We're so honored to have you. Well, th thank you. Well, that sort of buildup, uh, I, I worry I'll disappoint. <laughs> Dan, why don't you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. All right. Well, my uh, current role is I'm chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, which is an organization I set up about uh, 22 years ago to defend low-tax jurisdictions from international bureaucracies like the OECD that had this big anti-tax competition, anti tax haven uh, project. They were trying to make the world, redesign the rules of world commerce to make it easier for uncompetitive high tax nations uh, to in effect export their bad policy around the world. Uh, but now the center does all sorts of free market issues. We're not just involved in the uh, 
in the tax competition battle. I was a senior fellow for the Cato Institute for about 11 years. Before that, I was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation for about 17 years. I did a stint in Capitol Hill, and I started my career uh, working for Citizens for a Sound Economy, uh, which was a uh, taxpayer group, uh, grassroots group in Washington. I got my PhD from George Mason University in economics. Uh, I went there because of all the public choice and Austrian school economists that taught there. It's a great, uh, great school. And before that, I got my undergraduate and master's at the University of Georgia. And you can see all my Georgia hmm. stuff back behind me. I'm a passionate Georgia bulldog. As a bulldog owner, I support your uh, choice in teams there. What was it specifically, Mark, that you were telling me about? He was giving a talk, something having to do with uh, GDP and spending and the countries that do well as opposed to countries that don't do well. And there's a pretty identifiable trend that he had a lot to say about. What was it that caught your eye? Dan's one of these guys who has a great knack of making very complex ideas simple and easy to understand. And that's really, it's, it's a, quite a bit about what Live and Let Live is about because Dan knows I, our rule number one didn't sound too foreign to him, but we said it very differently. How you explain ideas is really important. And we gotta, if everybody understood everything that was in Dan's head and my head and your head, they'd already be on our side, no question. We'd have a free society, we'd have peace, standards of living would be rising, living on the planet would be a lot better than it is right now. Still great to be fair about it, but it'd be a lot better. So I'd love for Dan, he knows what I want him to talk about and explain. He doesn't have his slides here, I don't think, which is uh, too bad, but he's so good at explaining it. Just Dan, tell him, you know what they need to know. Why don't you just explain it to him? Well, I'll try to do it all in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the simple message of my presentation at the Liberty International Conference in Columbia was that the demographics of the developed world are changing, and the demographics are changing in a way that's going to cause immense fiscal problems. Uh, and, and here's the basic story. When welfare states were created, partly in the 1930s, but then really expanded in the 1960s, welfare states were created with the assumption that we'd always have a population pyramid, you know, that triangle we probably all learned about in school, where you have a few old people at the top of the pyramid, then a generation of workers and an even bigger generation of children. And when you have a pay-as-you-go welfare system, especially, you know, basically transferring money from young workers to old retirees and beneficiaries of healthcare programs and things like that, so long as you have a population pyramid, that sort of Ponzi scheme pay-as-you-go system, it might not be advisable, but it's sort of workable, at least if it's kept within a reasonable size. Well, the problem is, is that that population pyramid, we're living longer at the top of the pyramid and we're having fewer children at the bottom of the pyramid. So the pyramid is becoming a cylinder. And in some cases, it's almost an upside down pyramid because the number of old people are outnumbering the number of children in the world. And, and this demographic change that we're in the middle of right now, by the time baby boom generations fully retire, these uncompetitive, unaffordable, inefficient welfare states that already are causing economic problems are going to actually cause fiscal crisis. We already saw Greece and some of the other countries in Europe uh, ba basically have to get bailed out by the IMF and the European Central Bank about 10 years ago. Well, that process is about to happen again. Only this time, I think Italy, which is, by the way, what, 10 times bigger than Greece in terms of their debt, in terms of their GDP. So if Italy goes belly up, you're talking about a major, major problem. And it's not just Italy. You look at the countries that have over 100% of GDP and government debt, Belgium, France, uh, heck, we're there, the United States uh, as well, although I don't think we're quite as bad off as some of the European countries. But the bottom line is we never should have created a welfare state to begin with, but we created it with the presumption of that population pyramid that no longer exists. And so we're in very deep trouble uh, and we desperately need genuine sweeping uh, entitlement reform. Uh, we need to shift back to having the private sector involved, uh, shift back to individual responsibility, people saving and planning for themselves and not putting ourselves at the mercy of politicians who create these Ponzi scheme pay-as-you-go systems 
that are causing so much trouble and the future trouble is going to make the current problems look trivial by comparison. What are some solutions that you would propose? Well, it depends whether I'm wearing my libertarian cap or whether I'm wearing my what can we get Washington politicians to do cap. Those things are very different, for sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in, my, in my libertarian fantasy world, it's pretty simple. We phase out all these programs. I mean, I don't want to pull the rug out from under people who are retired now or older workers who don't have time to change their behavior. So, yes, by all means, fulfill the obligations and promises you made to people. But in my radical libertarian world, we would go back to where we were back in the 1800s with no income tax, no social welfare state. Uh, I think our economy grew faster, gave more opportunity to people. Uh, so that's my fantasy. Now let's sort of dampen our expectations. You know, Dan, I, I, we don't we don't want to dampen our expectations. I'm good with that. Ex what you just wanted to do if you were king of the world. My issue with what you just said is you you posed that you wrapped it in your radical libertarian hat. Now, I, I want to visit that for a moment. Is this really so radical? Let's think about what we're actually saying here. What we're saying is I want to go to a world where people aren't stealing other people's money for any purpose. Now, if that's radical, something's wrong with what's going on. We sh we're not the radicals here. Your position that we people should not steal other people's money and spend them even on good things like helping the poor, things we should be doing anyways that we want to do, even things like that. That's the right position. It's the right position morally. It's the right position legally. It's the one that makes sense. If we were starting from scratch, we would say, how about this? You don't steal other people's money. We go back to the kindergarten rules. Keep your hands to yourself and don't take the other kids toys without their permission. We're not the radical ones here. We should stop talking about it and presenting it to the world as if that position is radical. Their position is completely radical because everybody's hitting each other over the head or threatening to taking everybody else's money, spending tons of money to argue over Who's going to get to spend all of the stolen loot in on what? When we shouldn't be doing any of that. That's the lunacy. And that's the only thing that I take issue with in everything that you said right there, which was eloquently stated, in my opinion. All right. Well, OK, I, I am chastened. Uh, I, I so, so I, I gave right there the reasonable freedom-oriented approach that everyone should agree to if they're a good person. And by now, the way, by the way, Mark, Daniel's correct that it is the radical position. If by radical, what you mean is what's not commonly in practice right now. So, Daniel, I do not take umbrage with your language, but the unfortunately, the radical position is the moral reasonable one right now. Now, yeah. let's go to let's go to Washington, D.C., though. Uh, okay, so, so now, now let's go to Washington, where where the idea, the, the the very notion of doing something good is an incredible uphill climb because you're basically dealing with politicians that thrive on setting people against each other, dividing populations into into uh, you know, who's paying and who's uh, getting. And, and, and it's just a very, very corrupt system. What can we possibly do to at least move in the right direction, given what are called the public choice incentives of politicians to always want more power in Washington, more money in Washington? Uh, they want to divide us in order to get the maximum number of votes. Well, we have had in Washington fairly serious legislation to take the three big entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, and reform the three of them in different ways. With Social Security, it's pretty simple. Just like Australia and Chile and many other countries have done, you shift from a pay-as-you-go tax and transfer system to a system of individual savings, where instead of paying payroll taxes into a government system for a 40-year, 45-year working lifetime, you put your own money in your own retirement account, and then you have a big nest egg when you retire. Very simple concept. Many countries have done it. There is a big transition cost issue, which is what do you do about the fact that you have all these current retirees 
and older workers. So that's the challenge for doing social security reform. Medicaid reform and Medicaid for your listeners, that's the government's healthcare program for poor people. With Medicaid, it's pretty simple. Learn from the success of welfare reform in the 1990s, take all that Medicaid money, all the rules, all the regulations, all the red tape, get rid of it all, just block grant the money to the states and say, here, here's the money that we were sending to you through this convoluted, complex Byzantine system. You now, just like with welfare reform, here's the money, do what you can to help poor people have better health. Then you get innovation, diversity, competition, experimentation. I think it would be just as successful as welfare reform. And it would save money over time because the block grant would grow a lot slower uh, than this sort of unbounded entitlement program we have now. So that's how you fix Medicaid. How do you fix Medicare? You base, and by the way, Medicare is the government's uh, healthcare program for old people. Uh, so Medicaid for poor people, Medicare for old people. With Medicare, all you simply do is you learn from the success of the federal government's own employee healthcare system. Federal bureaucrats have a competitive market based on choice, where in effect they get a voucher and they pick the healthcare plan that's best for them. So what we would do is just apply that same model to uh, for old people, uh, and they would have the ability to choose from any number of approved plans, and they would, in effect, get this voucher uh, every year and, and pick the health plan that works best for them. And the voucher would increase slower than the, uh, than the unbounded entitlement program we have now. So all these reforms would save taxpayers money in the long run, but that's almost a secondary benefit. The real benefit is we'd have a better retirement system by reforming Social Security, and we'd have a better healthcare system by reforming Medicaid and Medicare. Now, why is this important to do? Because right now, the United States is on a path to become Greece, to become Italy. We're not as far down the path as they are, but already these programs are enormously expensive. And when the baby boom generation fully retires, uh, and especially when you factor in just the way healthcare costs are exploding precisely because the government is so involved in that market, it's very important that we do these things if we want to avert major, major fiscal and economic problems in the future. I think these are excellent, excellent points that you made, all of it workable. My reaction to that is, to me, step one, if you want, if you want to get people's brains around getting around the ideas that could actually get them to agree, these are transition issues, right? So we need to first convince them of the right principles, which is what I earlier spoke about rule number one and rule number two. Once they get their heads around that, even if they say, look, we agree with everything that your whether radical or conservative libertarian position said on this point, we agree with all that. We still got a rather substantial problem of transitioning. As you said, I don't want to pull the rug out from under these people. Everything you said is an excellent transition step. I want to run something to maybe fill in the hole of where you left social security because you basically left that one with, well, we could do it, but it's very expensive and we got to figure out how to fund it. Here's an idea. It occurs to me that I pay somewhere about 12 to 15,000 bucks every year in social security. And so in about four years, I, that'd be about $50,000 I pay in. I'm paying in no matter what. If the government said, hey, you know, Mark, if you sent us 50,000 bucks, we'll let you out of the social security system, but you don't get any benefits. I'd have to do a calculation in my head, huh? For 50,000 bucks, that's a break even in four years. After four years, I can start investing my money in the real stock market or real estate or some other investment. And if I take the you know average of, this, of the market since the Great Depression, I start you know crunching the numbers, then I do better off pretty quick. So it makes sense for me to pay $50,000 to be let out of the system, even forfeiting my benefits. But not only does it make sense for me, it makes sense for almost everybody up until the time they just get ready to retire and start claiming their benefits. So there's those people in the edges there. But with those people, we can take all of the money generated by the other 90% of the people who made sense to pay 50,000 bucks and give them a present day cash value payout 
So they can do the same calculation and invest, see if I invested this money today in the real market, rather than give it to the government and get my whatever one or 2% that I get over time, I would do much better too. So we could end the program. We could snap our fingers and essentially end that program in a rep. You know, it's still a little bit rough, right? Because to get me to pay 50 grand in when I shouldn't have had to pay anything at all in is rough justice to be sure, right? Because the right answer is I shouldn't have to pay anything in. But we're trying to transition here from a crazy mess that we're in right now to a place that could actually get us freedom and peace later on. So I, I proposed this to Ron Paul one time and he said, you know, I love it, Mark, but you assume they want to end Social Security. <laughs> and he said, that's not the case. So it didn't uh, go anywhere. But anyways, this kind of thinking is excellent thinking. Two things I wanted to throw at you. I promised Andy I'd get you to talk about that screen you had up with the gross domestic product and how each country that got wealthy, how they got wealthy in relative to the amount of money they spend as a percentage of GDP. And then second, can you just do me a favor here, Dan? I tell people all the time, keeping in mind I'm a criminal defense lawyer, not an economist. I say, look, I feel this way because I think it's wrong to steal. But the good news is if we had a free market, which is what results from this policy, standards of living rise. And they say, really prove it to me. And of course, I, I know North Korea, South Korea. I noted some comparisons between the US and the Soviet Union. And when we had East Germany and West Germany, some obvious things. But I think you could do a much better job than me filling in the gaps in my criminal defense attorney brain but having your economics brain, give me a couple minutes on why it's why the benefits of a free market raise standards of living more than any other controlled market. If you if you got some things you can say on that point, I'm happy to uh, to give you a monologue on that issue. But let me make one comment about Social Security that I should have said before. There is this expensive transition cost and the idea you proposed would help fill in that hole Uh uh, maybe even to a big degree. But here's the point I didn't say. Even if the transition cost of moving to a personal savings system is enormous, let's say it's $10 trillion or more, the unfunded liability of the current system adjusted for inflation is more than $50 trillion. So in other words, we're already in a very big hole Moving to a system of personal retirement accounts based on private savings and non-coercion is a much smaller hole to climb out of. So, so mathematically, let's assume that uh, you know, I don't know, meteors come down and you know, you know, crash the Earth. It doesn't matter what scenario you come up with. We'll be much better off if we go to the system of personal retirement accounts. Period. Underline exclamation points. It's a smaller hole to climb out of. Now. What oh, real quick? What you, you you mentioned that other um, countries had done this with success. Which other countries? Well, the, the two most famous countries for doing personal retirement accounts are Chile, which has sort of a universal IRA type system, and Australia, which has sort of a universal four hundred one k type system. Uh, now, I do worry. There's a very left wing president now in Chile. I worry that he's going to try to wreck that system. But the good news is that it's not just those two places. There are about 30 countries around the world that have either fully or partially shifted to private savings for their retirement systems. Uh, and, and it works a lot better, assuming, and this is a challenge because we see the threat in Chile, assuming that politicians don't come in and wreck the system. And that, of course, is a problem with every issue that we care about. There's always the threat of some greedy politician, some power-hungry politician willing to wreck the economy, wreck people's lives just to try to achieve power. It's just, it, it comes with the territory. Now, regarding making the case for why freedom works better than statism, every year, the Fraser Institute publishes something called Economic Freedom of the World. Uh, and actually, you also have the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, uh, and even the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Report, they all basically do the same thing. They rate countries and rank countries on the basis of, do they have decent rule of law? Do they have modest regulatory burdens, stable money, open trade, 
decent tax systems and fiscal systems. And and by the way, when you're saying decent, we're not talking about anything that the three of us would like in terms of radically smaller government. We're talking simply about what type of system at least gives the private sector some breathing room, some uh, so, you know, some some money that is left untouched and unmolested by the politicians, so people can work, save, invest, create, be entrepreneurs. And what you find in these rankings, like the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World, is that the countries that have the most economic liberty grow the fastest, have the highest per capita income, the longest life expectancies the lowest levels of child mortality, pretty much every indicator that you could possibly want, uh, you will find that the more market-oriented a country is, the more individual economic liberty that exists in that country, you'll get more growth and more prosperity. And, and, and I specifically, when I'm talking especially to my friends on the left, I ask them, give me an example at any point in world history of a country that became rich by adopting big government, by adopting status policies, and they can't. Now, most of them will say, oh, well, what about Sweden? Uh, and I'll point out, well, yes, yeah, Sweden by world standards is a rich country, but guess what? They became rich in the 1800s and early 1900s when government was very, very small. And this actually uh, you know, ties into the other part of the question that I got about the chart with GDP and when countries became rich. If you go back to the 1800s and you look at the countries of North America and Western Europe, the first parts of the world that actually escaped poverty, what do you find? That we those countries became rich when there were no income taxes, no welfare state, the burden of government was tiny compared to where it is right now. The average burden of government spending in these countries in the 1800s and even all the way up to the eve of World War One was only about 10 percentage points of GDP, which, by the way, is half of what it is in Hong Kong and Singapore today. And those are considered the, uh, the smallest government countries in the world. So so the world economic history, the evidence is very, very clear that if you want rapid growth, you're never going to get it with statism. You're never going to get it with big government, with welfare states, with onerous income tax systems and things like that. We need, if we want more prosperity, or let, let me put it this way. It's not like there's a light switch on, off, on, off. It's a continuum, a spectrum. If you want more growth, you want to bring government down. Now, if you want less growth, now why you would want that, I don't know, but if you want less growth, go ahead and let government be bigger. And obviously you can sort of pick in the middle and have a, a modest level of growth with a modest level of government. But again, presumably the best thing for people, the best thing for families, the best thing for the future is to have rapid growth. And that means having the smallest possible government. And the data shows that unambiguously. I have been for decades asking my left-wing friends, show me one example of your policies turning a poor country into a rich country and none of them have ever come close to answering that question. Wow. Very eloquent. You yeah. were right, Mark. Staggering, awesome information. I'm really, I wanted him to say that on the Peace Radicals. Dan, I wanted to ask you something else. This, what we went through in, um, as a result of these same people uh, who run the world right now, the coronavirus issue, shutting down the world's economy. I mean, this is an, as far as I know, this is an unprecedented economic event when the leaders of virtually every country issue orders, making it the law to, in essence, shut down the economy. We had, I don't think we've ever seen such a shutdown like this. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think now we are suffering from inflation and all of the other various issues that we have that can be directly attributed to that and not maybe all of the other substantial, what I'd call as a lawyer, a substantial contributing cause as like the amount of money that has been printed up to service, the spending that occurred during the coronavirus, maybe the war situation in the Ukraine, the canceling of pipelines and those things. So what are your thoughts on that issue? In terms of the coronavirus, uh, the shutdowns were an extraordinary step. Politicians basically panicked. They thought it was the uh, 
you know, the new Black Plague uh, for the for the 21st century or something like that. I uh, I tend to have a pretty forgiving view because people sometimes panic. I don't think they really meant to do harm. I think they just they just thought, oh well, if we somehow uh, you know you know for two weeks we all stay home, uh, that'll kill the virus. And I guess in theory, if we all were totally isolated for two weeks, maybe that would have happened. But of course, in reality, that was an absurd thing to try to do. And uh, and so we had a sort of an experiment. And a few countries like Sweden took a more rational approach. A few states in the United States took a more rational approach, with Florida being an obvious example. Uh, and, this, and the countries and the jurisdictions and the states that were more rational, you wound up having a quicker recovery uh, and, and better outcomes. Now, probably economically, the number one mistake during the coronavirus was not the shutdowns. And that sounds like a dramatic statement to make, but let me explain why. During the shutdown in the spring of 2020, central banks panicked just like political leaders panicked. And central banks, I guess they thought it was going to be 2008 all over again, and they dramatically expanded their balance sheets. You look at the European Central Bank, you look at the Bank of England, you look at the Federal Reserve, they all dump money into the system in an astounding fashion. I mean, in, in the case of the ECB and the Fed, you're talking trillions of dollars and trillions of euro uh, uh, expansion of the balance sheet. Uh, now, why did they do that? Uh, for the life of me, again, I'll try to be forgiving. When the, when the coronavirus was first happening and everyone was panicking and thinking, oh, my God, society is going to break down. OK, yeah, they, they basically opened the floodgates and started uh, creating money, expanding their balance sheet. But once we saw within a couple of months that the world was going to go on and that we were going to adjust to it and vaccines were being developed, why did they keep expanding their balance sheets? What motivated them? Uh, was it because governments were spending trillions of dollars and they were, in effect, monetizing that debt? Uh, you know, whatever their motives were, that is what has created the inflation, that the higher prices that we're now seeing throughout much of the world. It, it, you know, I, I saw a tweet the other day from somebody who said, oh, this isn't the fault of governments because we're seeing inflation everywhere. Well, no, we're seeing inflation everywhere because governments, their central banks everywhere, made the mistake of expanding their balance sheets and and uh, and print in effect de facto printing a lot of money, and that's that's I think the long lasting harmful economic legacy of the coronavirus is the mistake that central banks made. I think is even more important than the mistakes that some politicians made with their shutdowns. And, you know, you're you're one of these economists who speaks to other economists. So you guys throw around this this jargon as if us non-economists understand what you're talking about. And I and I understand this because Andy and I do the same thing when we're when we're lawyering up. I'm, I'm told all the time we throw terms around. But when you say expanding their balance sheets, I think what you mean by that is governments that are not on. Um, monetary standards, like a gold standard, which is every government now, they get to just print more money and throw it into circulation. Is that what you're talking about? And can you break that down a little bit for people? Yeah. Uh, let me put it in sort of the, the simple terms of how it actually operates. Central banks like the Federal Reserve, they go out to the market and they buy up government debt. And also, technically, they buy Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac securities. But they go when the Federal Reserve goes out and says, we want to expand our balance sheet. It means we're going to buy more of these bonds and securities. And, uh, and that means that we have more assets on our balance sheet. That's what expanding the balance sheet is. But economically, what's relevant is that they're, when they buy these bonds, in effect, from private investors, because they don't buy it directly from the Treasury. They buy it through open market operations, it's called. Uh, what happens is that they, in effect, are writing a check on nothing. That They just sort of wave a magic wand. We're buying that bond. We're buying that Fannie Mae security. Uh, and, and when they're buying it, uh, the people who are selling it, they have money now that they can put in the bank. Well, that money came from nowhere. So, so, so. When, when people complain that the Fed is printing money, that's technically not what happens because 
is actually the Bureau of what engraving and printing that prints the money. But that's not that's it, it, that's not the inflation either. The inflation is writing the check on thin air, figuratively speaking, that winds up then in the pockets of all these people that uh, that are selling bonds and securities to uh, the Fed when the Fed does these open market operations. So that's where the money is created. That's technically the inflation happening right there. We then get consequences of the inflation, such as higher prices or financial market bubbles and things like that. Why would so? Yeah, once again, for a for a non-economist, help me figure out. So, the central banks made these uh, problem uh, made these mistakes because they anticipated the uh, coronavirus to be a much more serious pandemic than it actually was. Why would they want to buy up a whole bunch of outstanding uh, debt and things like that to increase their assets in the wake of a more serious virus? Well, they weren't motivated by a desire to increase their balance sheet per se. That was just a consequence. They were motivated by a desire to dump money into the system. Uh, They wanted the economy to have a lot of liquidity. And I think some of it may have been a hangover from 2008. When we had the financial crisis back in 2007, 2008, you actually had a lot of wealth just disappearing overnight. A financial housing bubble burst. Uh, the stock market fell. Uh, financial institutions, in effect, uh, almost overnight became illiquid and in many cases insolvent. And back then, uh, the, the the Fed dumped a lot of money into the system. They dumped a lot of money into the system in a way I didn't like. I didn't like TARP. Uh, I would, if we're going to do a bailout, my view was we should have done what's called the FDIC resolution approach, where you you in effect bail out the depositors, the retail people. You never bail out the bondholders and the shareholders of a financial institution. But that's 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 a sort of a separate issue. But the point is, during the 2008 financial crisis, there was real liquidity disappearing, real wealth disappearing. And so when the central bank uh, in the U.S. and I assume I've never looked at it, but I assume uh, other central banks did the same thing. A lot of money was dumped in, in effect, to replenish that money that disappeared. Well, money wasn't really disappearing when we had the coronavirus. So when the Fed dumped all this money into the system through this open market operations, where when they buy things, they're writing a check again on thin air, and in effect, creating money, creating liquidity, they were adding to the existing stock of wealth, of liquidity, of assets, of money, however you want to describe it. And so what's the what's the old saying that Milton Friedman and many others taught us decades ago? Inflation is more money chasing fewer goods. You know, there's actually a formula, money times velocity, you know, equals price times output or, uh, you know, but let's, uh, <laughs> you don't want the boring jargon. It's simply, we had so much money into the system uh, so much additional liquidity being put in the system, and yet there wasn't a compensating increase in economic output. So more money chasing fewer goods means higher prices. And that's exactly what we're dealing with today. And the way you fix that problem is you have to unwind all the excess liquidity creation. And that's, in theory, what the Fed is beginning to do. And then people are saying, oh, the Fed's going to cause a recession. Well, the sad news is they probably will cause a recession. But the key thing to remember is they're stepping on the brakes now, but they're only stepping on the brakes now because they made the mistake of hitting the gas back in spring of 2020. And then they kept their foot on the gas for, you know, if they had if they had put their foot on the gas for two months in the spring of 2020 and then realized, oh, wait, the economy seems like it's adjusting. okay, and then took their foot off the gas. We wouldn't be in this mess today. But right now we're in a mess of high prices. And we're probably going to be in a mess of a recession. And it's all caused by central banks making that mistake in the first place of stepping on their gas and keeping their foot on the gas and expanding their balance sheets by by you know, by trillions of dollars, which means, of course, more, most relevantly, trillions of dollars of just liquidity was thrown into the economy without any compensating increase in economic output. So, of course, it bid up prices and, and that problem is going to be a painful one to fix but it's 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 baked into the cake that we're going to have some economic misery 
two quick follow-up questions to that. What is the federal government doing right now? So what steps are is it taking to curb inflation? And then a recession. It sounds like you, you're predicting that one is inevitable here. Um, when we all kind of throw around this term, a, a recession will be caused, a recession will happen. It's, I'm assuming it's an economic term of art. What is a recession? Popularly speaking, a recession, most people think, is two or more quarters of negative growth. So two or more quarters of contraction. 20, isn't it 20% contraction or no? No, that, that, that's, that's, a, that, that's how you define a bear market, is if oh. the stock market goes down 20% or more, that's a bear market. Uh, if the economy has two quarters in a row of a contraction or wow. negative growth, as as economists like to say, uh, that's what most people think a recession is. But no, that's not technically the case. Technically, there's a body called the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a handful of economists who look at all sorts of measures of industrial production, output, income, and stuff like that. And they, at the, after the fact, usually, will tell us, okay, the recession began on this month and it ended on this month. And so, for instance, in 2020, we had a recession, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, but it only lasted two months. So you don't need two or more quarters of, uh, of contraction or negative growth. Uh, but you know, we're not going to know until maybe six months or a year from now when, what the National Bureau of Economic Research is going to say. In theory, we're expecting that, uh, that the first quarter and second quarter of this year we might already be in a recession, but we're just not going to know until later. The point is, in terms of people's lives, there's a lot of economic uncertainty. Prices are rising faster than our incomes. Uh, there's there's major shortages in the labor market. Uh, where, where even though the official unemployment rate is low, the labor force participation rate has come nowhere close to uh, uh, recovery compared to where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, so the economy definitely has some hiccups to deal with. Uh, now, I, I want to say something that I think a lot of market-oriented people, free market people, sometimes get wrong. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's caused by central banks creating too much liquidity. Inflation is not caused by deficit spending. So a lot of Republicans are saying, oh, inflation is Joe Biden's fault because he had that fake stimulus uh, scheme where he squandered $1.9 trillion. Well, if they're going to criticize, and, and I think that was a waste of money and a bad piece of legislation, but but simply having the federal government go out and borrow money and waste it doesn't cause inflation. It's only the central bank, the Fed, creating too much liquidity that causes inflation. Or well, technically, the creating of the excess liquidity is the inflation. The rising prices are the symptom of the inflation mm -hmm. if we want to get technical and wonky about things but but you can have you can have trillion dollar deficits every year so long as you have people in the private markets who are willing to lend money to the government you can have endless deficits with no inflation and likewise you can have balanced budgets with inflation uh, if you have a responsible fiscal policy but a reckless central bank uh, so so, so I, I just want to get across the point that I don't like what Joe Biden is doing in terms of fiscal policy, squandering money and spending money. For that matter, I didn't like Trump basically doing the same thing, squandering money and spending money. But those bad policies are not really, if you want to be accurate, those bad policies don't cause inflation. The only link is if, you, if you're in a country like Argentina or Zimbabwe, where the government doesn't really have the ability to borrow money because nobody trusts the government, well, then in countries like that, what happens is central banks will, in effect, buy government bonds simply to monetize the debt to help finance the government's budget. So, yes, deficit spending, when there's no private sector people who are willing to buy a government's bonds, yes, then you can have bad fiscal policy leading to inflation, but it only leads to inflation because the central banks are monetizing the debt in the first place. So again, I come back to what I said a few minutes ago. Inflation is everywhere and always, as Milton Friedman told us, a monetary phenomenon. So if I understand what you're saying, you're making the point that when we talk about things like the $30 trillion debt, 
that's not what's causing the inflation. That's a separate, it's still a real problem. It's a separate problem, but it's not what's causing the inflation. And, and as long as we can keep making the interest payments on that debt, well, you can keep going on forever and ever, no problem. Of course, unless you keep borrowing money until somebody decides they don't want to lend you money anymore. But the problem of inflation, if I understand you correctly, is really saying, however they get into the economy, when the when more money, when there are more dollars in circulation, you have increased the number of dollars in circulation, that's what caused that it bids up the price. And the reason it bids up the price is because people now have more dollars to offer a higher price for the item. Assuming the goods don't also proportionately increase with the amount of dollars that you're adding. Yeah, that's right. If you increase the goods at the same rate, then everything would stay the same. And if you increase the goods faster than you increase the dollars, well, then the prices would go down instead of up because like everything else, you increase the supply. It's all still supply in demand. I feel so, like I just took my first semester of uh, eco- economics, man. I feel uh, very enlightened by this conversation. I'm understanding know, Dan, these basic principles a lot better. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Dan's going to agree with me here. I read a book once that taught me more about economics than any. Well, actually, maybe there were two books. First was Murray Rothbard's What the Government Has Done to Our Money. I thought that book was easy to understand and short and got my brain around a significant problem. And the second was Henry Hazlitt's, I think it was Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Pretty much taught me in, in hanging around with guys like David Friedman and Don Bordreau and uh, Walter Block and people like that help too. Um, but those two books for me were the best two books ever um, for people who don't know anything about economics. Is there another, do you like those and do you recommend a different one? Uh, I, I like those. What I usually do when I come across someone who wants to learn about economic issues, I have two different books, though, that I generally give them. Uh, one is uh, Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. Ah. And the other is Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics. And I tell them to read Friedman's first because it's meant for a popular audience. Uh, and then Thomas Sowell's book, I mean, it's it, it's written certainly so that an ordinary person can understand it. Uh, but it's also perhaps more something that you would use in a classroom. But those two books, I think, uh, are the ones that, uh, uh, the, well, they're the ones that I pick. The Henry Hazlitt book, uh, some of the issues are not the same as we deal with. When Henry Hazlitt wrote his book, there were people who genuinely thought that we should have real socialism. And when I say real socialism, I'm talking about central planning, government-run factories, collective farms. You know, so, so some of those issues, we've actually won. Or I don't want to say we won, but but by and large, it's only the real nut jobs like AOC and Bernie Sanders who still think that government should actually own the means of production, as the phrase uh, that socialists use <laughs> is. You know, nowadays, the average socialist is really just a redistributionist. They yeah. want the high taxes and a big welfare state, but they don't want to actually have the government have the responsibility of running steel factories and things like that. Uh, they just want to they just want to take uh the uh the earnings that the private sector generates they don't want to run the private sector now having said that of course they still through regulation and industrial policy and special tax they have all sorts of ways of indirectly sort of mucking with the private economy in addition to the taxes and the spending uh so it, it, it is a continuum you know there's pure socialism then there's all the garbage mixed economy stuff that we have. And then there's pure free markets. And I, I want to go over here where the free markets are. Hey, Dan, two things. First, I want to I want you to tell me if I if I did something bad against Andy, because I didn't recommend either um, Rothbard's What the Government Has Done to Our Money, nor did I recommend Hazlitt's book. I, you know what I threw at Andy? I, th- I threw at him Walter Block's Defending the Undefendable. Because that's the kind of guy Andy is. He needs more of a wild economics, right? But if you want to take a a perfect example of taking these complex uh, issues and uh, simplifying them and putting them in a way that's easily digestible, that was a really great read from Professor Block. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic. And then the second thing, I want to tell you, Dan, what it is we in the Live and Let Live movement say about capitalism and socialism and see what your take is on what we say. 
here's what we say in the live and let live movement. We say, we don't really care about that discussion. You can do whatever you want. You could be a capitalist. You could be a socialist. You could be something different. You could be a redistribution. Whatever you want to be, that's up to you. We don't care. Both of those, only thing we care about is whether someone violates rule number one. Each of those things has a version that violates rule number one. Capitalism that we call, so that I like to call crony capitalism. Okay, this violates rule number one. People are being coerced. There are licenses and forced monopolies and things like that. And for that reason alone, no other reason. I don't know which raises standards of living or not. I don't reach that issue. But for that reason, because it violates rule number one, I'm against crony capitalism. Free market capitalism, nobody violates rule number one. That's all I have to say about that. So they're free to do that all they like. Socialism, look, if people want to get together and pool their resources in a common pot and pay whatever bills, communally, communally bills they want to pay, they're absolutely, nobody's violating rule number one there. So they can have fun and Maybe if they invite me and they convince me it's an in, maybe I'll participate if they let me. I don't know, but that's fine. Like anything else, they can do whatever they want as long as they don't violate rule number one. The people who do such a group, though, and then force other people to join that arrangement. Well, as soon as I say force, they're violating rule number one. You don't get to force anybody to do anything. And for that reason alone, no other reason. I don't know anything about economic curves or how the how the Fed gets money in the economy or any of that stuff. That's that's interesting to listen to Dan Mitchell talk about that stuff. But we in the live and let live movement, we only care about one thing, and that's whether somebody is violating rule number one. Well, actually, the second thing we want to encourage them to be good humans, too. Did I miss anything in terms of what we people who want to accomplish freedom and peace. Did I miss anything that needs to be said about capitalism or socialism in that little summary of, of how we feel about it in the live and let live movement? No, oh, you're, you're getting at what I call the, uh, the division of labor among people who love freedom. Some people focus on the moral argument and the live and let livers. You guys make the moral argument with great clarity. It's almost it's not that you guys don't care about prosperity. You just you start with the moral principle and then you just enjoy the fact that prosperity comes from it. We just happen to be the ethical principle that leads to the most prosperity. Even if we but 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 an important point here is even if it didn't lead That's to the most prosperity, it's still you can't violate that principle. Yeah. You can't act immorally right. and justify it in an ends justifies the means kind of justification. Yeah. I, I, thanks for making that point, Andy, because Dan, if if you made your argument to me and I said, you know what, uh, you're going to violate the principle to get there. I, I'll accept a lower standard of living to not be aggressed upon. I think that's more important. So, yeah, I think. Well, and well, I mostly live in the world of what I call almost utilitarian libertarianism or capitalism, where most of my arguments are focused on the, the practical outcomes of having more economic liberty you have more income you have higher levels of prosperity you have faster growth but and and here's where i want to make sure that there's an intersection between our two worlds i sometimes tell people in theory you could add some government coercion and get more economic output you could hold a gun to people's head and make them take jobs on the weekend you could hold a gun to people's heads and make them uh you know, work overtime. And yes, in theory, and of course, in reality, I doubt it would ever work. But in theory, you could impose some economic coercion on a free market system and get more economic output. But no, that is not the, the goal is not to maximize GDP. The goal is to maximize individual freedom and economic liberty. And oh, that system just happens to provide incredible almost impossible to conceive bounty uh, for the world. It's now, a nice, co it's a nice about, coincidence for us freedom advocates, yeah. for sure. Yes. Now, let me say something about voluntary socialism. Because, yes, you can have voluntary socialism. Uh, the uh, the kibbutz uh, movement in Israel after, uh, after World War II was based on voluntary socialism. Some people make the point that families are voluntary socialist arrangements. As long as people are doing things of their free will, uh, I agree. Be a socialist if you want to be. In my family, with raising my kids, 
they weren't contributing to the economy. <laughs> they, they, they were net drains, but I did it because somehow that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the problem is, is that, and, and there's actually economic re academic research about we grew up in these sort of hunter-gatherer tribes that were almost based on socialist, you know, uh, and, and some people say, well, maybe socialism is hardwired into our genetic makeup. Maybe that's true. I'm certainly, you know, not knowledgeable about that uh, that type of stuff. But it's it does seem that we have this desire to belong to things. We like belonging to to uh, to families. We like belonging to neighborhoods and communities. We like feeling a kindred spirit with uh, with people. Whether it's because we're all rooting for a sports team, uh, whether it's because you know, we, we, we all feel a common sense of mission and the business that we're starting. So people do like to belong to things. And I think one challenge for our side is to point out that there's a big difference between voluntary associations, the, 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 the feeling of community that we get from working together with other people uh, for a common goal. And once you let government come in and start using coercion, you know, not only is that sort of bastardizing the idea of community, uh, but you then wind up with all the inevitable mistakes and junk that you get with government intervention. Uh, yeah. But but that's just not an area where I have enough expertise to really uh, jump in. Yeah, you know, once you cross that line, as you say, come in with government coercion, now it's a free for all, right? Because everybody's got different ideas on what you should be coerced into doing and what where your money should be spent. This is the essence of the Republican and Democrat arguments with each other. Both sides are totally fine coercing and aggressing against other people. They completely are in agreement on that. The only thing they disagree on is in what ways you should be aggressed upon and for what purposes. And the difference between them and us is obviously we're saying we don't think you should be aggressed upon for all reasons in all cases. So, you know, Dan, I love hearing you speak like that. You sound like you are 100% a live and let liver. I know how you feel about the moral principle. We didn't really talk about it very much, um, but I already know because I've heard you speak before. That's an option. But if you agree with be a good human and the th things I talked about that contribute to um, optimizing human happiness and well-being and minimizing suffering, if you can check that box too, you're actually a live and let liver. And so we want you to belong to the live and let live group, the actual group of people around the world who have explicitly said, I agree with rule number one in all cases as to groups, corporations, governments, and I agree with rule number two as a suggestion. I'm going to do my best to inspire people to act a certain way. So, and I'm inviting you to let's work together. I, you know, you bring things to the table that Andy and I would love. We're making a moral argument, but we love that. Oh, by the way, this also is the best way to achieve the highest level. All right. Maybe 99% of the highest level. Although, you know, you might say Dan, we, we might even get with that kind of an argument. We might even get some of the less morally inclined people to become live and let livers and then understand the importance of the morality on the set as an afterthought. Right. A lot of people are most concerned with the bottom line. In fact, isn't that the entire point of a redistributionist system or a system of taxation? They're saying we're going to commit a certain of, amount of aggression because it's in the greater good of everybody for us to redistribute the wealth. So therefore, it justifies the aggression yeah. in the first place. And by the way, I just I want to give you a little bit of a pushback on your we could get better economic growth by having the government hold a gun to your head and say you got to work a weekend job. I'm not so sure about that because they got to fund that some way and people are going to push back against that. And some did and some didn't and some were wrongly accused. Now we got to give them trials. And, you know, that starts getting expensive economically as well. And so well, very, I, I, I did say that in theory, they might as, be able to do it. But in practice, it just like everything the government does, they have the sort of this reverse Midas touch where it turns to, you know, what? <laughs> Love it. Well, we're at the end of our time, gentlemen. And uh, Dan, we wanted to give you a chance to plug anything that you're yeah. working on. Do you have a website or w ways people can find out what you're up to? Well, the Center for Freedom and Prosperity is simply freedomandprosperity.org. But probably the best thing to do if someone wants to sort of get more of this type of information that I'm sharing, I write a daily column 
That's at www.danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. But the simple thing to do, go to any search engine, type in Dan Mitchell blog. It'll be the first thing that comes up. Uh, you can sign up for it. It's free. I mean, I, I do this uh, uh, to spread the message of liberty and freedom and share all the evidence showing how that leads to more prosperity. Uh, and I write a column literally every day, even July 4th, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It's sort of my shtick. Uh, that there's uh, so many bad things the government does that I need to write something every day to try to push back. Wow. We're honored to have you on the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much for a great conversation, sharing your expertise. It was very interesting. What a treat for our listeners. Yeah, amazing. Thanks thanks for having me on. All right, everybody, go check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. There's lots of exciting ways to get involved in the movement. Check out all of our chapters. We have a cool global map now on there that shows all the chapters popping up all across the globe. Find one near you or even better, start a chapter today and follow all the exciting things we got going on in the movement. Until next time, this has been Attorney Andy Markintel and Attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace. Peace.